From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Antibiotics have reduced or eliminated the effects of lots of infectious diseases and extended the lifespan of millions of people. But improper antibiotic use is contributing to resistant organisms that are harder to control. We'll talk about the rise of antibiotic resistance. And opioid painkillers can ease the pain during recovery from surgery or an injury but they can be as dangerous as heroin. And more people right now are dying from accidental overdoses from prescription opioids than heroin and cocaine combined. A new study may predict who is vulnerable to opioid addiction. Also on the program, the days of the annual physical exam are gone. We'll find out what's recommended for staying healthy. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, every year in the U.S., at least 2 million people are infected with some kind of bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. And of those, the even worse news, the CDC says... 23,000 people die each year as a direct result of those infections. Antibiotics are powerful medications designed to kill bacteria or to stop its growth. However, there are times when antibiotics can actually be harmful for both humans and animals. Misusing and overusing antibiotics can lead to the development and spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which in turn may lead to antibiotic-resistant infections. Well, here to talk about antibiotic resistance, what it is and how it affects both humans and animals, Dr. Pratish Tosh. Dr. Tosh is an infectious disease specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Tosh. Good to have you. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So it sounds like the bacteria are outsmarting our antibiotics. Yeah, it's... uh it turns out that you know, every antibiotic we make are actually derivatives of natural compounds you know, made from other organisms. And this warfare between the bacteria and the antibiotics actually started long before we were around. You know, we like to think that humans created penicillin, but actually the bug penicillium created penicillin eons ago while humans were thinking about you know, coming down from trees. And so this warfare between the bacteria and sort of the things that are creating the antibiotics has been going on a long time. And so uh, when we're using antibiotics, a lot of these resistance mechanisms, ways that these bacteria can fight the antibiotics, actually have already existed likely for thousands of years, but we're sort of selecting out the bugs that are already resistant. And how do they do that? How do the bacteria uh, circumvent the the antibiotic? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways, and when it comes down to it, they just need some sort of information in DNA that are packaged up, little cassettes, not, usually not within the chromosomes themselves of the, of the bacteria, but in with uh, transportable little cassettes that they can actually share within uh, other organisms, other, other bacteria. And so rather than, I think a lot of people like to think that when you put antibiotic pressure on a certain number of bacteria, some of the bacteria will automatically just spontaneously generate resistance. Although that's true for a few, the vast majority of the antibiotics, it's because of preformed resistance mechanisms that are carried on in these little you know, cassettes, little pieces of DNA, which can be shared. I love it how you're calling them cassettes because it says how old you are. It says something about you. <laughs> <laughs> There's some people listening that say cassettes. Okay, but now, now you've just kind of changed my thought about yeah. this because there are some folks who are, you know, the, the sky is falling, who would say, because we have developed antibiotics and because we overprescribed them, this antibiotic resistance is going to be our 
our downfall. But if it's been since we were in the cave, is there any difference then? Should it, should that make me feel better? I, I know I should make you feel better. Um, <laughs> you know, we are seeing now more and more resistance to the antibiotics we have. In fact, there are some infections that I see that are resistant to all the antibiotics we have. And really, we're suddenly we're back in the prehistoric or pre-antibiotic era and try to treat these people. What do you do? Well, uh, <laughs> usually if, if we find an infection in some place, we call a surgeon. <laughs> so can you cut this out or dust off the old medical books from you know 1942 and see, well, what, what do we used to do? Uh, but usually we try a combination of different antibiotics, hoping that together they might work in combination of uh, aggressive surgical debridement, things like that. But often they're very difficult. And sure enough, the, the mortality in those patients are, it tends to be really high. I would suppose then what you're saying is that the cavemen didn't have to worry about antibiotic resistance because they were not taking and using antibiotics. That's exactly right. And one of the things that we're learning more, and just in the last seven years, we're finding out that the normal bacteria we have in our gut is actually really, really important for a lot of things, development of, of you know, allergic diseases and things like that, and you know, this what we call the, the human microbiome. Mm-hmm. And then having an intact microbiome is really protective against these pathogens that should otherwise not colonize the gut and cause infections. I, I use the term cassette. If you want to think about a bacteria with a suitcase and each suitcase being a resistance mechanism, if you have a bacteria that has all kinds of suitcases, you know, it could survive almost anywhere, but it's not going to go very far, not going to be able to survive in a race, let's say, against other bacteria. And so if you have a normal, healthy microbiome, uh, because all the normal bacteria are there, these bad bacteria with all their suitcases just cannot survive. And so that's where those antibiotics come in. The antibiotics kill off a lot of the normal, healthy bacteria, disrupting that microbiome, allowing for these resistant bacteria with all their suitcases of resistance to set up shop. As a side note, is a, is a healthy microbiome the same thing as when you say a healthy gut? Sure, okay. sure. The normal bacteria, you really want a lot of, most of the bacteria are, are not, we can't culture them. We just know that they, uh, these, these, we call the, health, the healthy bacteria, the good mm-hmm. bacteria within the gut. Because the antibiotics kill off the good bacteria, too. They do. Okay. So we know that resistance, part of the problem, is over-prescribing antibiotics. Because every time you prescribe an antibiotic, the bacteria have another chance to become resistant to to figure out how to become resistant to it. Uh, a lot of antibiotics are given for viral infections, for example. That's that's part of the problem. But what does uh, what we eat have to do with this also? Because uh, the the meat and the cattle, uh, when they're raised, they are given antibiotics, and we ingest those. Yeah, correct? yeah. So some of this, and this is where I'm I've brought up the idea of the the cassette, if you will, <laughs> is that. Uh, just by the sheer tonnage of antibiotics we use, not just in humans, but then you start using it in animal feed, and so you get these uh, the 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 animals with colonized with these drug resistant bacteria, and as I mentioned, these cassettes they can actually be transferred from bacteria sure. to bacteria, and so when you have more antibiotic resistance, even if, if it's not a bacteria that will likely colonize or cause infection in a human, they're carrying these cassettes that can be transferred to bacteria that do uh, colonize and infect humans. So if you, uh, when you ingest meat in a, in a cow that has been given antibiotics, and the farmers want to give these antibiotics yeah. to protect the cow and keep the cow healthy, uh, so I would assume that you're not really transferring bacteria because that when you cook the meat, they're they're gone. But the antibiotic remains in the 
a product? I mean, it, there's, a, there's a lot of different things that are related to this, including we're looking at farm runoff and things like that. Uh, you know, these uh, animals are, you know, they're not using the toilet. And so uh, some, some of these antibiotic-resistant uh, uh, organisms can then get into uh, other areas. And, and it is, uh, there's, as you say, it's a complex thing and it's difficult to prove. Uh, but there seems to be a correlation between the amount of antibiotics we are giving to animals and then in, and then some of that uh, having consequences in human infection. So you just made it uh, a little bit easier for me when I go to the grocery store or I'm at the farmer's market to buy meat that is antibiotic-free or hormone-free or, you know, those different things that – those little tags that are slapped on yeah. our products that we eat. Are you aware of the food that you buy? I am. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly – because uh, if the grass-fed steaks taste delicious, <laughs> I start with that. Uh, that's part of it. But also things, you know, when I'm buying soaps, I actually intentionally do not get you know, those you know, antimicrobial mm-hmm. soaps because it actually seems to be contributing to antibiotic resistance in general. And, and they don't work very well anyway, do they? They don't show that. It hasn't shown that it's, it has any improvement over regular soap right. and has this potential detriment of uh, contributing to worsening resistance. And the antibiotic just hand sanitizers yeah. get rid of those as well you'd suggest so it's not those aren't antibiotic hand sanitizers so the alcohol sure. hand sanitizers yeah those are those are very effective and, and and they work soap and water also really good but i try to avoid the things with antimicrobial compounds in them dr patish tosh infectious disease expert at the mayo clinic we're going to take a short break and when we come back we'll talk about you and your colleagues must sit around thinking about solutions <laughs> to this problem and we want to know what those potential solutions are I do and we'll talk about summertime infectious diseases with Dr. Pratish Tosh. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. Our guest is Dr. Pratish Tosh, an infectious disease specialist at the Mayo Clinic. So, Dr. Tosh, we know that there's a problem with antibiotic resistance, partly because of overprescription of antibiotics, partly because uh, the animals that were eating their meat, they're getting some uh, antibiotics, and that contributes to the problem. So let's talk a little bit about what you think might be the solution to some of these problems, because I know you and your colleagues must talk about this about it every day, because you, what keeps you awake at night and what are the solutions? Well, we can talk about what keeps me awake at night later, uh, but we're talking about solutions about antibiotic resistance and it comes back to that the antibiotic resistance has been going on for millennia before we showed up. And so these bacteria have eons of evolutionary biology in their favor. And I think the only solution is through using evolutionary biology. And let me explain that. You know, when we uh, created penicillin, everyone thought it was great, and then suddenly we saw penicillin-resistant infections. And then we created a new antibiotic to fight those. And a few years later, we found resistance to that, so on and so forth. And I think Einstein said that the uh, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And sure enough, we find bacteria that are resistant to everything. But this is where it comes down to understanding where those resistant bacteria live and the importance of these cassettes, the, the, the suitcases that these bacteria carry. I said that you know, they're not going to be able to run a very fast race against other healthy bacteria. So it turns out that our normal gut, our normal human microflora, is very protective against the colonization with these resistant bacteria because you know, something that has all those suitcases is just not going to survive. I think about If you think about a zebra being just a resistant horse, and you take that zebra out of the Serengeti, put it into the Great Plains of the United States where it's really not well adapted, it's not going to survive very long. And certainly if you took in two, there aren't going to be a bunch of zebras because there's normal horses competing for things and uh, wolves and all that stuff. 
But if you suddenly, through antibiotics, using the, uh, this analogy, wipe out the normal horses, wipe out the wolves, and then you put in two zebras, well, those zebras are going to be everywhere because they don't have to be that fit. And so the, I think the overall solution, mind you, this is very editorial and this is early stuff, our overall solution is to use that evolutionary biology, our normal microflora. And we're learning more and more about things like stool transplantation, which has been useful, very effective. No, wait a minute. Stool transplantation? <laughs> yeah. So we take healthy stool, healthy microflora from a healthy person and, you know, put it into somebody who is... For C. diff, uh, right? Yeah, for Clostridium difficile infection, which is essentially a, a, a multidrug-resistant organism in the setting of a poor uh, microbiome. Biome, and so, and then we give them normal stool, re- replenish their normal microbiome. No, I don't know. Wait a minute. How do you do that? Well, Transplant. different ways uh, <laughs> through enemas. We do it through okay. colonoscopy. Right, it comes in that way. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, although there are other ways. Some people are putting it in a capsule and you swallow it. Or oh my goodness, yeah. quickly. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Uh, so yeah, it, it but it is. Wor- I, I have it is working wonderfully. It, it's unbelievably effective. It comes down to it. You're you're fixing it at the root of the problem, and we're learning more and more about these resistant organisms. And sure enough, some of our anim- some of the animal studies so far would suggest that people who are colonized with these resistant organisms, if you give them a stool transplant, you can actually get rid of. The the colonization with this resistant organism again replenishing the the normal flora and so I think the way we're going to fight against eons of evolutionary biology is to use eons of evolutionary biology and in doing so we also need to reduce our overall antibiotic use uh, some of that is just by trying to get uh, physicians to stop prescribing for things that aren't necessary but also you know often they're giving antibiotics because they don't know what it is a person has right mm-hmm. I don't know if it's bacterial or not. So maybe we need better diagnostics. Tell the physicians, you know, this is a virus, no need to treat, or the person is at low risk of having complications, so they don't need an antibiotic. And then there's that therapeutic. So if you have better diagnostics and also have new antibiotics that are more directed towards just what you're trying to fight, so you don't have so much collateral damage to the normal microbiome. So do we need to let our kids be dirtier? Is that part of the solution? You're you're going to become a dad this year. I am. And are you going to let your kids not cleaning all the toys, let them lick at their fingers if they've been crawling on the floor, all that good stuff? You know, we're learning a lot more. And this is, some of what I'm about to say is going to be editorial and not very well proven. Uh, but we're learning more and more that some of these things like uh, allergic diseases, perhaps even things like depression and obesity can very much be related to changes in the normal microbiome and that uh, these interactions between the, uh, the Im- immune system and other parts and our and these gut and our gut bacteria you know, very, very important, maybe contributing a lot to this, uh, to some of these other diseases. Again, this is very early kinds of research, but I'm actually really excited about it. So to answer your question, yeah, I am not going <laughs> to, I'm a big fan of, of doing this. That's great. You know, and there was a study actually that looked at households that uh, ha- have a, a dishwasher versus those that hand wash. And the ones that hand wash actually ended, and the kids actually had fewer allergic diseases and things like that. Because the stuff isn't as clean. Because it's not as clean. That's awesome. And so you're sharing bacteria that otherwise wouldn't be shared. 
It's Nothing wrong with, wrong with a little dirt. Not at all. Never yeah. heard anybody. That's what I always heard growing up. Well, it's, it's summertime, and as we finish up here, what are some of the things that we see in summer? I would suppose something from the swimming pool, uh, yeah. maybe a West Nile virus. What are you busy studying right now at this time of year? So right now, I think there's a, an outbreak uh, in Texas related to cryptosporidium, which is a really tough free-living organism, uh, amoeba kind of thing, protozoan, uh, that can cause some bad diarrhea, but most people will be able to recover from it on their own. But uh, Without an antibiotic. Without an antibiotic. <laughs> In fact, there aren't really great antibiotics uh, against it. Uh, and if you have a healthy gut, maybe it doesn't bother you as much. You know, that is certainly uh, something I would espouse, but again, not, not, hard, <laughs> not hard evidence. Okay. Um, but, you know, people who have uh, poor immune systems, especially people who have HIV or AIDS, because real bad problems in chronic disease and chronic diarrhea, uh, which is very, very tough to treat. What about West Nile virus? Yeah, so that's uh, spread by mosquitoes. Uh, we, we certainly saw uh, an initial peak in the, in the two, early 2000s, uh, somewhat petered out, but last year we saw a, a rise of that. And most people who get West Nile virus, it's, it's a nothing, I mean, a small fever. But we do have some people who have what's called neuroinvasive disease. It can cause permanent uh, say damage to the brain um, and end up uh, causing some real real problems. So a couple of uh, items before you leave. One is a word about antibiotic-resistant TB, a bug that's mm-hmm. been around forever. And then we want to know what does keep you awake at night. Okay, briefly, multidrug-resistant TB. Often it's because people are not prescribed the combination of drugs. Usually you want at least two active drugs, so you start off with at least four up front, and then the, the bacteria becomes resistant. And because it's spread through the air, you spread it to other people, and they get multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. But you still see that disease in we, the in the U.S. and here? Uh, usually it's imported, meaning that it's people who got it elsewhere, and, and then they come to the U.S. and they develop it here. But in terms of things that keep me awake. The things that I worry about most are these respiratory illnesses that are, that are severe and may be spread from person to person, especially the viral ones. There's an outbreak happening right now. Yes, there is. So I concern about Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. MERS. MERS. And there, it just took one person who had traveled to the Arabian Peninsula, went back to Korea, and he was in a, a crowded emergency room for several days, actually, and ended up spreading it to at least 30 other people who then went to other hospitals and spread it to many other people. Very concerned about about that and other emerging respiratory illnesses. And that's because there's no really treatment, good treatment for it. It's, well, is it a viral? It is a, a virus, viral and it can be yeah. pretty severe. My main concern is it looks like it can be transmitted from person to person. Right now, not very efficiently, but sort of a race between the virus mutating enough to be easily transmitted between people and a race between our scientists in developing uh, you know, a vaccine. A vaccine I would direct against the camels, which is actually the source of, of the virus. That's one of those uh, plane right away type problems, right? You know, it could be. Well, we hope that you are successful and more successful than the virus is so you can sleep better tonight. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Dr. Pratish Tosh, infectious disease specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, a new study may help predict who becomes addicted to opioid medications after surgery or traumatic injury. We'll talk with one of the study's authors. And when to get a physical exam. The days of the annual checkup are gone. We'll find out what's now recommended. Coming up, the latest health and medical news. News with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams from the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
A mosquito-borne illness called chikungunya has arrived in the Americas. People generally don't die from chikungunya. They feel crummy. They have fever. They have pretty severe joint pain. It's like a very uh, extreme flare of rheumatoid arthritis for some people. Travel medicine expert Donna Springer says wear bug spray to avoid mosquito bites. Now let's talk about another creature that can cause issues, your pet. People who are allergic to dogs or cats might think it's all that fur that causes the sneezing, itchy eyes, and other symptoms of pet allergies. But Mayo Clinic allergy experts say it's more likely a protein in your pet's saliva or urine. The protein sticks to flakes of the animal's dry skin or dander, and those flakes can end up all over the house. If you're allergic to dogs or cats but still want to have one, these things might help. Choose a small dog or cat, keep them out of your bedroom, bathe your pet once a week, get rid of carpets, or if you have them, shampoo them often, and use an air purifier and vent filters. There's no guarantee it'll work, but these steps may help people with pet allergies stay symptom-free. And in other news, Mayo Clinic epilepsy specialist Dr. Joseph Servin is happy that Twitter pulled flickering videos because they can increase risk of seizures for some patients. And that's a look at the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Opioids, narcotics are powerful painkillers and are often prescribed long-term for the chronic pain associated with, well, diseases like cancer. But opioids are also prescribed short-term to help manage pain following surgery or trauma. It's been known for some time that despite their short-term need, some patients wind up receiving repeated opioid prescriptions. Our next guest wanted to find out what it was about those people that put them at risk of becoming repeat opioid users. He's Dr. Michael Hooten. Dr. Hooten is an anesthesiologist and pain management specialist. He recently co-authored a study in the journal Mayo Clinic Proceedings that found one in four people who were prescribed an opioid for short-term pain progress to long-term prescriptions. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hooten. It's good to have you here. It's very nice to be here. Thank you very much. Michael, the study uh, has recently come out, and it has to do with opioid use. Tell us what opioids are as a category. Well, opioids as a medication group typically refer to drugs like morphine. So morphine is probably the most well-known drug in this particular class. Other drugs that or synthetic and not naturally occurring drugs would be uh, medications like oxycodone, oxycontin, uh, Vicodin, um, Lortab, and then even medications uh, like Dilaudid or fentanyl. And they're all painkillers. They are very potent painkillers, correct. Potentially addictive, though. They are. Like other drugs in this class, which illicit drugs would be heroin, right? That's a legal form of this type of drug. Yes, they are potentially highly addictive. And you had said opioids are created opiates, are the natural ones. What's that difference? Typically, the the language that we use to differentiate between illicit or illegal drugs and and medication or or, um, medically available drugs is opiates refers to heroin, and then opioids refer to drugs that are majority of which are synthetically manufactured. So tell us about the study. Obviously, concern in prescribing these drugs because they are potentially addictive. What did you find out? Well, what we found out is you're looking at a a population sample. So individuals that were identified within Olmstead County to have received a initial prescription for an opioid. And that uh, prescription may have been for something as simple as low back pain, maybe an ankle sprain or knee pain. And then we were interested in what 
were the important predictors that led from an initial prescription to take on a pattern of more recurrent use uh, over a 90 to a greater than 120-day period. So most of these, when they're prescribed, are prescribed for short-term use in, in these patients, in this particular group you were looking at. Yes, in this group, uh, they, they, for instance, patients in this group did not have cancer or other types of malignant conditions that would may require longer-term use. These were general, primarily musculoskeletal pain patients. And the number that went on to be users, uh, repeat users, how many? What percent? Well, what, what we found was that approximately 21% wound up using the drug somewhere between 90 and 120 days. And then a total And probably of, had been prescribed for a week or two, correct? It, it, exactly. That initial prescription was more than likely very short term. Mm-hmm. And then the second group went on to use... Uh, the medications beyond 120 days, or they were, or they received greater than 10 prescriptions. Is that because that speaks to the power of opioids for addiction? Is that what the link is? Is that what you're saying? Not necessarily. So I, I don't. It wouldn't be accurate to say that those individuals that went on to longer-term use necessarily had an addictive disorder. We were not able to identify that. However, what we did find was that a history of smoking or a history of some type of substance use was predictive of longer-term drug use. And again, that's not to say that the people that required subsequent prescriptions were necessarily addicted to those, you know, to the medication. There had to be a physician or dentist or PA who was complicit in this. Exactly. Yes. And these medications were being prescribed in, you know, sanctioned healthcare facilities within Olmstead County. And probably just from a phone call. And, or the patient called the uh, secretary and said, I need to have that prescription refilled. And either the physician or the resident or somebody had to do it, right? Yes. Somebody had to write a new prescription because with these medications, you can't call in refills. Every prescription requires a, a, a new form to be completed. So is the bigger point that we have to come up with other ways for patients to be able to manage their pain, or we need to be able to find out other better ways to be able to medicate that pain? I I think both, but I think it's also important that when initial prescriptions are provided to be more aware of potential risk factors which could drive or lead to longer-term use. So the repeat users were tended to be the identifying characteristics were people who were prior substance abuse users or they were nicotine users they were they were smokers they were cigarette smokers correct and these are not difficult characteristics to determine for example if someone's a smoker you can typically smell it so it's easy to identify these patients that are at risk and you know screening questions to look for a potential for a previous substance abuse problems are readily available, and actually they're widespread use you know, in clinical practice. If you're if you're a physician and you know that you're prescribing a, an opioid to a smoker or someone who has previously abused some kind of of drug, what do you do? Well, I I think that awareness is key, and and um, I think if if the physician or the prescriber is aware of this potential risk, they may be more mindful and more uh, conscious of these renewals when they do come in. Okay, it's probably important an important link to notice or to make note of because this is where you hear the problem with heroin. That problem is just exploding. So many people 
have this have oxycodone. They can't get their prescription anymore. They can't steal some from a relative or a neighbor when they're at their house, and so then they transition to heroin because it covers that same type of pain. It, it covers the pain, and it also provides the euphoria, but also it prevents withdrawal from the medications. And this unique pattern of heroin use that has emerged that you described, it's more of a bridge. So individuals will bridge gaps in the ability to get the prescription opioid with heroin. Mm. And typically when the prescription medication is available, they will drop the heroin quickly and transition back to the drug of choice. It makes me think about that link with smoking. Is it because, I think I've heard this before, that smokers have that part of their brain that is more easily addicted, that's been turned on by the nicotine? Is that true? Yes, and and in in this manuscript, we we suggest that uh, the reason that we are seeing these associations is because not only is nicotine use linked, but so is chronic pain um, and and also opioid use. They're all linked neurobiologically in the brain. So those substances, including chronic pain, affect the same brain or a similar set of brain regions. So what do you do to help these people? Uh, obviously, there are more and more of them, and there are a lot of these drugs that you can get on the street, and we know that the incidence of people being treated for prescription drug abuse has doubled, tripled, and more in the past 20 years. So how do you help these people? It's difficult, isn't it? In fact, it's a national epidemic, and more people right now are dying from accidental overdoses from prescription opioids than heroin and cocaine combined. Oh, my really? gosh. Yes. So as, as Tracy suggested... Optimizing or identifying non-opioid-related medications that can be helpful, but also non-opioid-related procedures, if you will, or interventions to help mitigate the effects of both acute and and possibly longer-term pain problems. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, it's a problem that's getting worse. But uh, hopefully, you and your colleagues can figure out how to how to stem the tide. I hope. Dr. Michael Hooten, anesthesiologist and pain management specialist, congratulations on the study. It's been an eye-opener for both physicians and patients. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. We've been talking with Mayo Clinic anesthesiologist and pain management specialist, Dr. Michael Hooten. His study about long-term opioid use among people for whom pain relief was intended to be short-term was recently published in the journal Mayo Clinic Proceedings. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, it used to be that having an annual checkup was part of staying healthy. Now there are different guidelines for when and how often to have a physical exam. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shiles. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, it used to be that an annual physical exam was a routine part of health care. Every year you did it. But over the years, recommendations have changed, and a yearly general exam may no longer be necessary, especially if your overall health is good. Here to talk about the routine medical checkup, when to get one, and what tests to have done is Dr. John Wilkinson. Dr. Wilkinson is a specialist in family medicine at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wilkinson. Thank you very much. John, nice to have you. It's good to be here. Thank so you, you, we don't need a general exam anymore, or annually anyway. <laughs> you need uh, many things, but you may not need the traditional annual checkup or routine checkup. When does that start? Because I'm a parent and I'm always, I always have to take my kids in for their well-child visits. When does it start that you don't have to go see the doctor every year? 
probably sometime around age five. There are many things that all of us need to have done on a regular basis. We need to have a pap smear. We need to be checked for elevated blood pressure. We need to have our immunizations updated. The annual checkup was simply one method of making sure that all of those things were done. Unfortunately, it wasn't really as efficient or uh, affordable as uh, it might be. And it probably depends, as we mentioned uh, in the opening, on your health. So no matter what your age, if you're healthy, you probably don't need it every year. You may need it every two or three years, depending on uh, the advice of your of your practitioner. The main thing that we that I spend time doing is uh, talking to people about their lifestyle, whether or not they have a healthy lifestyle, and uh, you know. Deep in our hearts, we know whether or not we have a healthy lifestyle. It may be helpful to be reminded once in a while, but uh, you don't necessarily need to come and see me to find out. In the notes that you sent over, you said it's only in the movies and in television when someone's illness is discovered very dramatically in just a regular checkup. It's usually that you're not feeling quite right that sends you in for that appointment. I would say that that has never happened to me in over 30 years. The people who have bad things going on, Uh, have some symptoms of some sort. By all means, come in and let's talk about that. But if you're feeling perfectly well, the one thing that's not going to happen in an annual checkup is that we find hidden disease. Now, it may be that that you would find it reassuring that you don't have hidden disease, but again, we have to ask ourselves, is that really the best use of all of our times, and can we afford that anymore? Let's say you're 50 years old. You haven't been to the doctor. You feel healthy, but you you really need a baseline exam, wouldn't you say? And if, if you came in and didn't have any specific complaints, what would you include in that exam? I would check your blood pressure. I would check your lipids. I would check to make sure you're, you weren't uh, overweight. I would check to make sure that you were exercising regularly. I would ask the, and make sure that you're not smoking. And then would tell you that at age 50, we should tar- start checking and screening for colon cancer. Okay, but there's a big range between 5 years old and 50 years old. I would imagine there's some, you mentioned a pelvic exam, where you get a pap smear. What are some of the benchmarks that people should make sure to get on their calendar? Actually, uh, you need a pap test every uh, three to five years. You don't necessarily need the pelvic examination to go with that. And, uh, and so women should do that every three to five years. And uh, starting at around age 35, men should be screened for uh, high cholesterol. Uh, women starting around age 45. Again, everyone should periodically have their blood pressure checked, but if it's always been well, uh, it, it's not likely to get too far out of uh, control. So every few years would be fine. And when you say check your lipids, you mean uh, cholesterol and triglycerides? Those Tri- test- cholesterol, triglycerides, and HDL cholesterol. HDL is the good cholesterol, the good and you one. want a lot of that. You do. But you don't want much bad. You you do not. And, and if those are elevated or if those are out of control, do you normally prescribe medicine or do you try changes in diet first? We usually will try changes in diet and lifestyle, uh, regular daily exercise and a, a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables and uh, whole grains. And uh, again, uh, very, most people uh, should know whether or not they're doing those things. And uh, some people claim that uh, by checking their cholesterol, they'll be more motivated to do so. In practice, that hardly ever happens. Isn't there something to be said, though, for a a doctor and a patient building a relationship? 
that they know each other and that uh, it doesn't seem quite so awkward when you show up every 10 or 15 years? Absolutely. And this is this is one of the things that we're working hard to maintain. There's there's uh, there's something important when the doctor examines you and the doctor touches you. That's very reassuring. And having that ongoing relationship is critically important. We don't want to uh, lose that and lose sight of that uh, importance for patients. Uh, But uh, it's, again, not exactly clear that doing an annual checkup uh, uh, or on a regular basis is the only way to achieve that. So how do you do that in the 21st century? You said you've been doing this for 30 years. What has changed? One way to do that is to be accessible when people have something that's uh, troubling them and to make sure that uh, we do all we can that the for them to be able to see their primary care provider uh, when they have a problem. And that'll build a relationship. When a patient comes in for their annual exam or maybe the first time you've seen them, what do you want them to bring with them? How can they prepare for that exam? They should have some idea of their family history. Even in this day of uh, the genomic revolution, just knowing what members of your family had uh, unusual diseases or members of your family that had usual diseases but at an earlier age, roughly speaking, under the age of 50. All right, family history, what else? Medications? If, if Again, if you're on medications, you probably should be seeing me on a regular basis to manage the, those chronic medical problems. But that's not considered an, an exam. That's just a, an appointment to manage your uh, medicine. In the past, we've kind of uh, conflated all of those things together, and you see your doctor for the checkup things, the screening things, and the ongoing management things. And uh, uh, I caution patients that uh, that the insurance companies uh, are getting a little pickier about this. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you you may be coming in to prevent a condition from getting worse and view that as your annual checkup. Uh, but that isn't necessarily the way your insurance company might think about it. So you better check. You know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the other thing I always like patients to have with them is a list of questions because so many times the patient leaves your office and they say, oh, I forgot to ask my doctor such and such. So I think that's important too, don't you? Absolutely. The Again, the if if the uh, if the, li- the list of questions for the, uh, the 21st century uh, checkup are, questions about healthy lifestyle. How can I uh, exercise better and eat better and and uh, get help in stopping smoking or identify whether or not I have a, a, a unhealthy alcohol use uh, pattern? I kind of started sticking my nose into this family medicine stuff and reading up on it a little bit, and I found that one of the things that uh, a patient will come and see you about is depression. And is that part, when you are doing an annual exam, is that something that you speak with patients regarding? Absolutely. Uh, we uh, uh, here at Mayo Clinic and uh, and throughout Mayo uh, uh, across the country and throughout Minnesota uh, screen all patients for depression. That's a, a United States Preventive Services Task Force recommendation that uh, uh we, we go and ask people about that because it's hard to have a healthy lifestyle of any kind or pay attention to any of these issues if you're depressed, and we want to help. Dr. John Wilkinson, specialist in family medicine, thanks so much for being with us and updating us on the general exam. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs.
Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.